0: Hi, it's Fraser here. And it's Tom. Two thirds of the
1: Spike podcast. I know we say this every week, but before today's episode, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who donates to us. Spikes is free. We want to keep it free and it's donations that allow us to do that. One-off
0: donations are absolutely brilliant, but the best way you can help us is by giving a monthly donation. Even something like £5 a month can make the world of difference to us at Spiked.
1: It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com, hit the big red donate button in the top right of the homepage and just fill in your details. Now, on with the show.
0: Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. Coming up on the show, El Paso, Scottish independence and the democratic socialists of America.
1: 15 to 20 people were killed in a mass shooting in El Paso near a shopping center in Texas.
0: The gunman is 21-year-old Patrick Crucius.
1: The suspect posted his racist anti-immigrant
0: manifesto to the online message board 8chan. We must shine light on the dark recesses of the internet.
1: White supremacy is an international
2: terrorism problem.
0: At the weekend, a gunman murdered at least 20 people in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. The gunman, Patrick Cruzius, has been linked to an anti-immigrant white nationalist manifesto, which was posted online just before the killing. El Paso is on the US-Mexico border, and many of the victims were Mexican citizens or Hispanic Americans. It was an act of white identitarianism coming in the wake of the racist massacring of Muslims in Christchurch and of Jews in Pittsburgh.
2: Brendan, what are
0: your thoughts on this
2: uh, horrible event? Yeah, really shocking, really disturbing. I think it's actually quite an important event, especially when you add it together with the Christchurch massacre and the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, because it does suggest that shootings, mass shootings, are moving in a new direction and are taking on a new form. And we are moving on from the era of Columbine and other kind of random mass shootings that took place over the past decade or 15 years, all of which were, you know, worth analysing and investigating and talking about, but which were pretty random, pretty uh, nihilistic, uh, pretty crazy. But what we have, I think, with these recent shootings is something a bit more... I wouldn't want to call it political, and I would even question the use of the term terrorism, which I don't think is particularly useful for these kinds of acts, but it's definitely something identitarian, as you say, something driven by, at least by the politics of identity, and something which seems to echo in an incredibly violent form the broader politics of grievance, the politics of victimhood, the sense that my identity, my ethnic group, my cultural group is under attack, is being invaded, did in this case by Hispanics is being undermined and therefore I need to stand up for it by killing the enemy the other identitarian group who I think is harming my identitarian group so on one level it's absolutely horrific that people would think like that and act on those thoughts in such a violent way but on another level it all sounds really familiar because mm. this is the meat and veg of contemporary politics uh, politics is increasingly identitarian. It is uh, driven by claims to victimhood. It is driven by uh, the management of conflict or alleged conflict between identity groups. It is driven by this sense of competitive grievance. So this is the weird thing about El Paso and the Christchurch massacre as well in particular. Um, on one hand, they are incredibly alien. You know, what kind of person goes and kills? If you look at the list of victims in El Paso, there are so many old people, basically old Mexican people. It's just absolutely horrific. So on one level, you think, what kind of person does that? And on another level, you read the alleged manifestos of these killers. And you also think this sounds like everyday politics. And I think what we're witnessing is the militarization of identity politics. Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I
1: think the the ideology of it, I think, is um, darkly fascinating. Part of it, you know, you can kind of recognise as some of the strains of thought on the kind of um, white supremacist fringe that have existed for some time. This idea of the Great Replacement, you mm. know, this idea that invading hordes of migrants are there to displace white people, that white cultural heritage is under threat. This is also an idea that Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch um killer, um trafficked in. I think his manifesto was even called the Great Replacement and this is something yeah. we see re- reflected in the El Paso Shooters Manifesto you see a lot of these kind of white, old white preservationist ideas or older white preservationist ideas, but even a lot of them are kind of refracted through a sort of new lens, which, as Brendan says, is very modern, um, very familiar, and very much about the politics of diversity. This is one thing that you've seen the alt-right in particular do in recent years, which is try to kind of launder their white supremacist, ethno-nationalist ideas through the language of diversity to almost try and exploit the fact that the identitarian left in particular have created this idea that cultures are distinct, um, that they're almost sacrosanct, so that the idea of integration is almost a form of like cultural imperialism and horrendous mm. because it breaches the boundaries of um, set, defined cultures and just tried to kind of flip it on its head. I thought it was interesting that the shooter came up with this idea in his manifesto of a kind of confederation of different racial states within the United States, this idea of kind of like... It's not that um, I think white people are superior almost, it's just that we're all separate but equal. And I think it's just... Fascinating. I think it really needs to be taken up um, the fact that whether people like it or not, the identitarian right is using the ideas and the premises of the identitarian left to try to kind of launder their, their kind of classically racist white supremacist ideas. And I think it's important to take that up. All of that being said, I think it's also been quite shocking, the response to all of this and the Mm. fact that a deeper discussion of what this new form of identitarian right-wing violence means, where it's coming from, what's fueling it, what's led to the the frequency of it in recent times, to just a really ugly blame game, sort of Mm. Trump's fault because he's referred to Central American migrants as an invasion um, again, this kind of tit for tat. You then get into this situation where people bring up, say, the Dayton, Ohio shooting, point to the fact that the shooter in that instance, um, which happened within a 24 hour period of the El Paso shooting was actually a Elizabeth Warren supporter. So you get into this kind of, you know, both sidesism, which isn't particularly useful. And if we were going to go down this road of just saying that some mass killer who echoes the arguments of someone in the mainstream that person in the mainstream should be damned and as brendan has made the point why aren't people going after you know al gore given that there's Mm. a big eco-fascist line in this manifesto and it's even named after al gore's film "An inconvenient truth so I think it's this particular killing, as Brendan says, I think and, and after Christchurch, after the Tree of Life shooting, suggests that there's something quite profound that we need to grapple with. But unfortunately, it seems as ever, um, people are pretty ill-equipped to do so. They're so caught up in the kind of, you know, petty partisan potshots of all of it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think the knee jerk response is to, is to blame Trump. But then Trump has come out with his own kind of uh, knee jerk responses, whether that's in relation to gun legislation, but also his uh, attack on uh, video games or the suggestion that really this is all about call of duty. And, you know, what we need to do is to, is to basically censor or regulate better forms of, you know, mass entertainment. On the other side, there are calls to basically ban this 8chan forum, which um, has hosted a lot of these um, kinds of manifestos. In fact, it wasn't the killer himself, but someone uploaded the alleged uh, manifesto to this forum. Now there are attacks on, on this site. Cloudflare, one of its service providers, has um, basically cut all ties and they're kind of struggling to keep it alive. But the only reason this site ever existed was because 4chan started moderating, you know, certain more outrageous discussions. And so the kind of problem kind of trundles on when people are looking to basically censor ideas rather than, you know, really challenge them head on or actually get to the root cause of these problems, then we're just not going to get anywhere.
2: And that's why authoritarian solutions to things like this are always wrong, whether it's authoritarian solutions to mass acts of violence like... These shootings, particularly the El Paso one, or to um, Islamist terrorism in Europe, of which there has been a great deal over the past five years, authoritarian solutions are always the wrong approach, because on the one hand, you actually cave in to the terrorists by making society a less pleasant, less free place to live which is often the kind of thing that terrorists want to achieve. They want to instill fear in society. And also you don't get to the root cause of the problem. You don't address why it is that people are willing to slaughter their own fellow citizens or, you know, visiting Hispanics or whatever else it might be. You know, that's a far broader question. That won't be addressed simply by taking away guns or by banning websites or anything else. I think one of the things that's interesting is, is the, the blame game side of it. I think is fascinating and, and disturbing and really, really cynical. The idea that Trump bears any responsibility for this act in El Paso, I find really actually quite repugnant. Cause on the one hand, there's no evidence whatsoever that Trump would ever want to kill. <laughs> Mexicans or anyone else shopping in a Walmart. So it's a really actually unacceptable thing to say about him. And also just absolves the killer off full responsibility for his actions. He's the person who decided to do this. He used his free will. He made a choice. He could have stopped himself at any point, And yet he did it. So it's entirely on him. He's the one who decided it. And I think diluting his responsibility by blaming speech or websites or politicians is really quite depraved. I also think in relation to the blame game, I think it's really fascinating what acts of mass violence get flagged up and talked about and which don't. Because, you know, I I often think that the left doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to condemning acts of violence driven by extremist hard right politics, because that's been happening in Europe for as I say, five years mm. through Islamist violence, which one could argue is a kind of also a neo fascistic or at least extreme ideology, incredibly intolerant, very politicized, um, quite religious, of course, which has slaughtered hundreds of people, including Jewish people, including children, including French citizens at rock concerts and so on and so on. And it didn't give rise to the same search for who caused this, what speech caused this, why is this happening, what can we do to address the rise of this um, explicit extremist ideology – um so there's this kind of incredibly partial response to acts of violence depending on who the perpetrator is depending on the, who the victim is uh depending on whether it can be blamed on blamed on trump or can't be blamed on trump that's the wrong way to approach these things i mm. think if we're serious about being humanists then we ought to treat all acts of violent extremism the same and try to get the to the root causes of all of them I think there is also a real danger for
1: the left in this, insofar as initiating this kind of tit for tat, because you are already seeing it across kind of right wing media and, and the Twitter sphere, as far as just reaching for examples of you know left wing political violence or at least left wing people who engage in some kind of public violence. There is the Dayton Ohio example, which as I say is quite tenuous, but you mm-hmm. don't have to go far to find non tenuous examples. You know, it was only last month that an anarchist um, attacked an ICE facility in um, Tacoma, tried to blow it up. Um, there was, of course, in 2017, I think it was the. Republican politician Steve Scalise was shot by a Bernie Sanders volunteer when the Republicans were practising for the congressional baseball game. And again, if you just create this standard whereby heated rhetoric, whether it's Trump talking about an infestation or AOC talking about concentration camps on the border, is treated as effectively an incitement to violence, then political speech, particularly testy political speech, is going to be chilled or called into question on all sides. And I think as much as anything else, the left is going to realise pretty quickly um, that they're going to get bitten by that if they carry on down this road
0: you're listening to the spiked podcast if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode you can subscribe to the podcast through itunes google play spotify stitcher and more and if your provider allows you to why not give us a rating and a review while you're there it really helps new listeners find the show Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell has said he is open to the prospect of another referendum on Scottish independence. Following the defeat of Scottish independence in 2014 by 55% to 45%, Labour and the Tories had ruled out the possibility of a second vote. Meanwhile, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said this week that there is a growing urgency for a second vote after an opinion poll showed a majority of Scots in favour of independence. Tom, what are your thoughts on on this?
1: Well, I think it's a very significant shift from the Labour Party, but it's kind of, I think we all knew something like this was coming or at least being talked about. It's just interesting that it's so much bubbled up to the surface. So, as you say, John MacDonald being interviewed at the Edinburgh Fringe said that he wouldn't stand in the way of a second referendum. Now, on the kind of substance, of course, I don't think it is the role of um, the UK Parliament to stand in the way of Scotland having another vote if that's what the people want. It's not clear that that is what the people <laughs> want at this point. And we should also, timing is important here. The last referendum was presented as a once a generation decision. Um, it, you know, it can't just be a kind of a do over just because the SNP didn't get the, um, result that they wanted last time. But nevertheless, it's obviously far more significant than the question of the substance. He obviously chose this opportunity to float this idea. Um, on the one hand, it's quite clear that, um, this, could be seen as Labour kind of dangling the prospect of a second referendum in exchange for some kind of support from the SNP to probably prop up a minority government rather than actually any kind of formal coalition given both sides have pretty much ruled that out but that's clearly something which is going on here you know whether or not there's um, the current government falls whether or not we go to another general election these are all ideas that people are floating Um, and as much as it's enraged the Scottish Labour Party who've had to kind of Say that this isn't policy and that this isn't something that they actually want to pursue. They're still nominally unionists. I think it does show on the one hand, the desperation of the Labour Party in general, you know, particularly amongst the Labour left, the um, support for the union was always pretty tepid. Um, and it was always a kind of quite kind of tactical argument, really. You know, they yeah. didn't want to get rid of Scotland because that at the time was quite a large bunch of <laughs> Labour MPs, not anymore, obviously, um, after the 2015 election. And now I think there's a kind of sense in which, obviously, if it could help them stay, get into government, then it's something that they're willing to countenance. But I think the other interesting thing about it is the fact that, um, and we've seen this emerging for quite some time, which is that Brexit and Scottish independence being seen as kind of forces which are entirely in tension, and actually Scottish independence is the entirely superior movement. You know, it does seem that SNP cooperation, whether it's confidence Supply or whether it's something more informal, is basically going to be premised on, we want a second independence referendum and we want a second Brexit referendum. Mm. I just think it's really interesting that in the popular discourse, Brexit is seen as something ugly, nationalistic, horrendous, hard right, whereas Scottish independence, which I think is far more compromised in various ways that we can get into, is seen as wonderful and progressive and something that if that English Liberals might not necessarily want to support because they like the Union are far more sympathetic to and I think that's this has brought that to the fore once again so It's
0: reminded me of a Nicola Sturgeon quote talking about her Scottish National Party saying we are not nationalists Yeah <laughs> You changed the letterhead then.
2: <laughs> yeah I think I think we should not we but everyone in the whole country should stop using the phrase Scottish independence because the SNP is not a Scottish independence movement by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> they don't want independence for Scotland they want Scotland to break off from the UK so that it can go crawling back to Brussels and become another satellite state of this kind of overarching, illiberal, undemocratic oligarchy. So um, it's the most perverse form of an independence movement you could imagine, because actually the only reason they want separation from the rest of us is so that they can subjugate themselves once again to EU diktat and EU oversight. So I think that's a a point really worth making, because Nicola Sturgeon walks around as if she is this kind of brave, Mm. kind of Scottish hero who wants to free the Scottish people from the kind of yoke of Westminster imperialism. And it's just a complete and utter fantasy. Mm. She's just a member of that layer of the bourgeoisie that is desperate to continue outsourcing governance and lawmaking to a foreign institution in order that she and other politicians can avoid too much interaction with her own grubby, people who they don't like very much. So it's an entirely undemocratic movement. That's the first thing to say about it. I think Labour's whispers or hints at an alliance with the SNP is just so opportunistic and so cynical. And it was interesting to see that some Scottish Labour MPs pushed back against it mm. and said, hold on, I thought we were in favour of the union. I thought we were, were in favour of one country governed by socialism and you know even they are quite shocked at some of the things that mcdonald and others have been saying it's interesting that for so long brexiteers have been accused of wanting to break up the kingdom and now lots of remainers are basically hinting that such a course might be worth pursuing if they could stop brexit which is obviously the thing that they are absolutely obsessed with I think the, the, the most dishonest thing about this whole discussion of maybe the Labour and the SNP coming together is the description of it as a progressive alliance. Mm. Yeah. It would be, and I know progressive means different things in different parts of the world, but in the UK, it largely means a forward looking, leftish, open-minded, pro-people outlook. That's traditionally what progressive has meant. And this alliance, if it were to happen, would be the opposite of that. It would be an elitist alliance of cynical, disconnected politicians who are just hell-bent on stopping the largest democratic vote in the history of the country. Mm. It would be a progressive alliance, in quote marks, against democracy, against the people, and against Brexit. So the idea that it's a progressive alliance to take on the the, the Tories or the (laughs) fash... (laughs) It's a complete myth and we've got to shoot it down. This would be an alliance of the elite
1: against the people. I think it's really interesting as well, the way in which um, Scottish independence and the way in which it's talked about is really bound up with... A kind of anti-democratic, anti- majoritarian sentiment anyway. I mean, Mm. this has been the way the SNP has framed. The argument for quite some time is that Scotland is the kind of progressive tail that can't wag the Tory dog, you know, and there's this kind of idea that everything south of the border is just lost to the forces of reaction and therefore the only thing Scotland could do is break away to at best kind of, you know, lead by example for the rest of the (laughs) United Kingdom. Um, What I find really interesting is how increasingly people on the Labour left are quite sympathetic to that message. I think, and you know, you've got people like Paul Mason who've been running around for a while being quite pro-Scottish independence. But I think even the kind of ambivalence about it um, from sections of the Labour Left speaks to the growing um, gap between them and rest of the voters in this country and their general desires therefore there is this kind of buying into that anti-majoritarian sentiment um that scottish independence sort of represents even though scottish independence would not help them at all <laughs> as far as representation in westminster they'll kind of like take anything at this point and i think that's been really really interesting i think it's just also again just to just to underline what brendan's just said the clear distinction between Brexit and Scottish independence is that Brexit at its core was about democracy. Scottish independence whilst I think the referendum certainly um, energised debate in Scotland and got people really interested in a kind of idea of a future project the core paradox of it the SNP never want to recognise is that it's built on remaining in the European Union and even let's not forget they wanted to keep the pound so the idea that it would have been real independence either from the Brussels or from London was always completely for the birds. It was a movement that whilst the SNP might not want to recognise that. They were making arguments in the language of grievance and identity. It wasn't really about democracy at its core. They they pretended it was. Um, So I think the idea that Scottish independence is superior to Brexit just gets things entirely the wrong way around. And it's even interesting, I think, a lot of at least English interest in Scottish independence is driven also by a kind of anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic sentiment as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's really important to emphasise. It's, it, it, I was watching. Um, you know, BBC did a series on um, looking back at Scottish independence. It's so interesting to contrast it with Brexit because it's just it just shows how limited the demands were. As you said, they wanted to keep the pound. They wanted to keep the bloody queen. Mm. You know, <laughs> there was no real sense in which they would actually be breaking away and casting about art, art casting for a new path. Yeah.
1: They kind of wanted the Norway version of Scottish not, independence. Yeah. In a way, yeah. <laughs>
0: And I'm afraid that that was always going to be the case with a party like the SNP. Mm. You know, the SNP is probably the most illiberal party in Britain. There's practically nothing that they don't want to criminalise. And, you know, this is the party that introduced every... Every nanny state policy gets tested in Scotland first. Yeah. Whether it's you know um, minimum pricing for alcohol, um, you know bans on two for one for pizzas. These are petty, mm. small-minded, and far more sinister far- stuff as
1: well. The name person scheme, name as well, person you know.
0: scheme. absolutely basically having you know assigning a state person to look after every child. Mm. The SNP is made up of basically very petty bureaucrats. So the idea of them leading this glorious revolution for independence is laughable. you're listening to the spiked podcast spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing for those of you who already donate to spiked we can't thank you enough it really means a lot to the team but if you haven't already then why not consider giving spiked a donation you can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the big red donate button in the top right corner At the weekend, America's largest socialist organisation, the Democratic Socialists of America, held its annual conference in Atlanta, and some of the proceedings were beyond parody. One video that went viral showed two delegates interjecting from the floor to make points of personal privilege. The first complained that there was too much chatter and that this was in danger of causing a sensory overload and triggering members of the audience. The second implored delegates to stop using gendered language, Brendan, what does this um, incident tell us about the state of the modern left?
2: Quite a lot, unfortunately. I mean, it's hilarious to watch and it's not surprising at all that it's gone viral because it is so funny and um, so contradictory and so weird and so strange. You know, you think to yourself, these people see themselves as radicals and edgy socialists who want to destroy capitalism. They can't even cope with a bit of audience chatter (laughs) or with, you know, being accidentally referred to as a male when... They think they're a female, you know, and you think to yourself, if you can't cope with those everyday incidents, you're hardly going to be at the forefront of overthrowing one of the most successful systems of uh, human organisation in history. So it's hilarious. And, you know, you do... The guy who said, uh, please stop talking in the audience because I've got sensory overload issues. You do wonder how people like that would have coped at the storming of the Bastille or <laughs> any, other, any other revolutionary moment when there was rather a lot of sensory overload in terms of noise and clatter and the theft of weapons and everything else that those things entail. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, it is ridiculous and pathetic. A part of me wants to say, stop obsessing over one clip because it has been shared in a rather kind of politically pornographic way and everyone kind of getting off on laughing at how ridiculous these people are. But the thing is, it is quite telling of where left wing politics is going, which is down the road of victimhood and self-pity and fragility in the mm. sense that you know you are a kind of very mentally fragile person in a kind of crazy world and that's very mainstream doesn't mm. mean everyone will stand up and say please stop giving me sensory overload but it does mean people will be more inclined to say they have mental health problems or they feel oppressed or they can't cope with problematic speech so that's a mainstream idea this cult of fragility on the left and that in my mind runs entirely counter to everything the left used to be about which was about being strong willed autonomous individuals in order that you would get together with other strong willed autonomous individuals and transform society so it 's a complete reversal of everything the left used to represent mm-hmm.
0: one thing that 's really striking is you know is, is the kind of victimhood element, and the people who are in this room who are at this convention are not just. Members, they're not just random people in an audience. These people are supposed to be delegates. They're supposed to, in theory, represent, you know, the chapters where they're coming from. But how the hell can you represent anyone if the main, you know, your main obsession is basically yourself? Are you comfortable with Mm -hmm. pretty, you know, normal speech? And certainly, how could they ever help hope to represent the working class as Mm. they hope to? You know, one of the interesting bits was that the clip actually starts with, you know, saying we're going to take the working class and we're going to, you know, win socialism. How, How can you expect to represent those interests against capital? You know, it's it's just completely insane.
1: It was quite clear that no working class people were in attendance. If they were, they were certainly <laughs> hiding themselves. I, my favourite bit, I know, you know, with agreeing with Brendan that we shouldn't focus too much on a little 30-second clip, I did find it quite funny that it seemed like the second point of personal privilege was actually in response to the first point <laughs> of personal privilege, <laughs> because he used the word guys. <laughs> that seems to have been the reading of it. Uh, I think it's interesting, because also it speaks to the fact that on the kind of nominally democratic socialists um, left in America, which has been very resurgent, you know, since... Um, uh, Trump, the kind of twin forces of Trump and Bernie Sanders seemed to kind of really rejuvenate this this group, the DSA in particular. Mm. You know, they were kind of this old, I think they kind of were a splinter off of the Socialist Party of America way back when and then fused with some new left academics in the 80s and no one really had anything to do with it. But I thought it was interesting that apparently in December 2017 they put out their membership figures and their average or their median age, rather, had halved from 68 to 33. <laughs> so I think it tells you something about, you know, what the influx is coming from, where the dynamism is coming from. And I think whereas there was this hope probably on some sections of the old American left that Bernie Sanders could cut through to some of the people who Trump was, that that kind of a movement could be bred, it's been quite clear that it's it's instantly been dominated by mm-hmm. these kinds of millennial identitarians. You yeah. know? And this is something which is really going to completely clip its wings if it has any hope of you know trying to break through in any meaningful fashion i think there is a problem on the kind of us left at the moment and this doesn't just go for the dsa it goes for people like bernie sanders elizabeth warren even up to some of the mainstream democratic party is that even if they don't endorse and practice this kind of identitarian nonsense they have a very high tolerance for it yeah there's not a willingness to say "Oh, just we're not going to have a you know a side discussion about gendered language right now we're talking about issues that are more important i think michael brendan doherty of friend of Spite, writes of National Review, made this point about the Democrats in general, which is to say, in the same way that like televangelists and the Republican Party were kind of somewhat ungenerously associated with one another, that's not what all Republicans look like. For a lot of people looking at the Democratic Party today, this is who they're associated with. Mm. And it, the fact that there's no willingness to recognise that all of this identity politics, all this victim politics, is not only a complete dead end in general, it also puts loads and loads of people off. Um, I don't think there's a willingness to to grapple with that, because on some level even up to Bernie Sanders and other people, they recognise that these people are, on at least in part, part of their base. You know.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's the most uh, depressing thing because, you know, we've said on this podcast, that I think, you know, Bernie Sanders would be a good choice for America. But if it's brought upon this wave of absolute dribbling identitarian mm. idiots, if those are the people who are essentially going to be pressuring him yeah. to act in one way or another, then, you know, then we're in trouble basically.
2: Yeah, I think uh, Tom makes a really important point there, which is that uh, to the extent that there has over the past couple of years been a revival of so-called socialism, you know, you've got Corbynism in the UK, you've got the AOC phenomenon in the US, and you've got the democratic socialists kind of having a new lease of life by the looks of it. It is entirely based on a woke agenda, mm. uh, on the kind of woke bourgeoisie who are pushing their identitarianism mm. under the cover of being Marxist and under the cover of reviving socialism. And someone in these movements, one of the older generation, ideally it would be someone like Bernie, but he doesn't have the balls yeah. to, to do it, ought to stand up and say not only is the kind of stuff you're pushing not socialism, but it runs entirely counter to the ideals of socialism, which were about trusting people to live independent lives and trusting them to come together to make a transformative impact on society. So the wokeness is not simply a new manifestation of socialist ideas, which is how woke people would no doubt present it. It is absolutely counter to those old left-wing ideals, many of which were incredibly positive. I mean, I personally would welcome a return of left-wing populism or, you know, populist left economic agenda, Mm. all those things. Not not because I would necessarily agree with all of it, but at least it would shake things up. But I think what we have in Corbynism, in the squad, in the US, in the democratic socialists, even around Bernie Sanders is the growth of this new pseudo-left movement, which actually is undermining everything that was positive about the left in the past, mm. which was a valuation of individual sovereignty and community solidarity. And those two things are impossible when you subscribe to the cult of wokeness and the cult of fragility.
1: I think it's, it's interesting as well with the democratic primaries going on as well, and there's a lot of discussion and a lot of kind of... Uh, gleeful rubbing of hands from some right-wing commentators about how much the Democratic Party has been pulled to the left. But as far as I can tell, the main kind of most eye-catching ways in which it has been pulled to the left in quote marks is this identitarian woke mm. bullshit. You know, mm. is, there's obviously some nominal discussion about healthcare, etc. But the thing that people really make a splash on is, uh, you know, talking about issues, supposedly of racial injustice, but just really push, or, you know, trans issues or whatever it happens to be. But just pushing it to such a ludicrous degree that to the point where you've got Elizabeth Warren, who again is a kind of like left-ish policy wonk, actually have some substance to agree or disagree with her you know to put her pronouns on her campaign page (laughs) to accuse the Trump not only of racism but pushing a campaign of you know economic racism and environmental racism and just all of this stuff kind Mm. of completely looking really more and more ridiculous to people and it was interesting because back in 2016 I think um, myself and a lot of people thought that you know Bernie was interesting because if he did manage to get through to go against Trump because he could reach into some of those communities that Trump was obviously resonating with he might have actually stood a chance particularly because the Democrats had nowhere, in other places had nowhere else to go I wonder if he could now I mean he's dwindling mm. in the polls anyway but even if you know the same conditions were there given the fact that he has become associated or that kind of movement has become associated with this very actually kind of anti-mass anti-ordinary people kind of outlook it's unclear that for many people you could actually separate out those parts now. And I think that's a huge shame.
0: You've been listening to the spike podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.